We shall turn now to the Word of God, the chapter read in the book of the Revelation, chapter 12. We may read just now from the last verse of chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads, and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads, and so on. When we come to the 12th chapter of the book of the Revelation, we come to a new section of the book where we start to go over area or time that has already been covered, but from a different vantage point. We look at the same period as it were, but considering (coughs) other events that take place during that period of time. Now, in the uh, last verse of the chapter 11, there are biblical scholars who believe it should really be the first verse of chapter 12. And others are of a mind that it is where it ought to be that uh, the chapter 12 begins where it does. Whatever view we take on it, the fact of the matter is there is a connection, a very definite connection between what we read in verse 19 of chapter 11 and then what we read in the 12th and the 13th chapters of this book. We are still in heaven. John, you remember, was in chapter 4 called up to see the glorious throne of the Redeemer where everything in earth and in heaven and in hell was under the control of the occupant of this glorious throne. Now, up until the end of chapter 11, we see all kinds of events taking place in human society. And we see wars and famines, men being afflicted because of their rebellion against God and their refusing to repent, God sending all kinds of judgments upon the world of men. But in the midst of that, as we have noted, and that's where the emphasis has been, upon the protection of the church in the midst of it all. We noted the numbering, the marking, the sealing of the godly, and the assurance that whatever would happen, the church was secure. Whatever judgments God would send, he would protect his church, and he would protect his people, and the witness of the church would continue even in spite of the opposition of the ungodly. And when we come to the latter part of chapter 11, we come to the glorious triumph of the Redeemer. As in verse 15, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
and we hear the heavenly joy expressed, uh, though the nations, in verse 18, were angry and they uh, were in opposition to Christ and his cause, they could not prevail. Jesus had promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They may oppose it, they may afflict it, they will never prevail. The triumph of the church of Christ is assured. When we come to the verse 18, we see the day of judgment brought before us when God rewards his faithful witnesses and the ungodly are judged for their sins. But then in verse 19, we have this glorious vision of which John tells us. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. Oh, the temple of God had been opened in earth. It was opened in the days of Solomon. And the glory of the Lord filled the house to such a degree that the priests couldn't even enter into it to do their work. Such was the glory of God when the temple was opened in the earth. But here it is the temple of God that is opened in heaven. And uh, we might think, well... Would we not expect a description? The temple that was opened on earth, we were given a description of its glory, its dimensions. Uh, here, what are we told about it? The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament. Now, I'm not going to go over the ground already covered, but this must have been wonderful in the estimation of John because no one had ever seen this ark before. It was hidden in the darkness of the Holy of Holies. And the priest, on the Day of Atonement, when he went in, he sprinkled blood upon the mercy seat because in the Ark of the Testament, or the Ark of the Covenant, was the law of God. The law that was condemning Israel, the law that was exposing their sins, and the high priest had to come and cover the law, sprinkling the blood upon it as a symbolic action covering the condemnation of the law and silencing the condemnation of the law by the blood that speaketh better things than that of evils. Now here we're told there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament. We can now look upon it. Is that because the law has been removed is that because the, the Ark of the Testament is now empty and now we can look because there's no law there to condemn us, there's nothing to be afraid of? No, it is because of what happens in the 12th chapter. And we see uh, the great salvation mentioned in a verse Ten, I heard a voice, a loud voice, saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ. The power of his Christ. This is a glorious a statement here, John was hearing heaven announcing it, glorying in it, the power of his Christ has been exercised and now the temple in heaven 
is open and we have nothing if we are under the shelter of the blood, nothing to be afraid of. Now coming to the 12th chapter, there are four particular figures that we need uh, to identify. You'll see in the verse 1, we read, There appeared a great wonder in heaven. And then again in verse 3, there appeared another wonder in heaven. Now that word wonder is the same word that is translated in many other places, particularly in John's Gospel, as sign or miracle. It's the same word. And here, what we're told is this, there appeared a great sign in heaven. Then in verse 3, and there appeared another sign in heaven. What are we to understand then of these signs? In the Gospel of John, the same author of the Revelation, he uh, referred to miracles and signs, wonders. Now, what was the purpose in them? John recorded many of them, and he said the reason was that ye might believe. These are signs that indicate clearly and testify to the fact that this is the Son of God. This is God manifest in the flesh. This is the Messiah. No mere man can do these miracles that thou doest. And he did these things as signs directing us to his deity, directing us to the fact he is God. Now here we have signs, signs in heaven. Now, right away, when we read what we have in the opening verses of this chapter, we can understand, if we look carefully, why it actually says it is a sign. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Here is a woman travailing with child. And this is a sign in heaven. When we go to verse 5, we read, This woman brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now right away, your mind goes to the birth of Christ. He's the one, Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin, in the fullness of time, God sent forth a son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now, wouldn't we naturally think, would this not be a sign on earth rather than a sign in heaven? If Jesus Christ was born in Nazareth, if he's born in the city of David, isn't that a, an earthly location? Would the sign not be in in earth. Ah, but you see, this is no ordinary birth. And this is no ordinary man-child. In the second psalm that we were singing from, weren't we singing of God's eternal decree? Thou art mine only son, this day have I begotten thee. 
Where is he begotten? Is he begotten in time? Is he begotten in earth? He is the eternal Son of God. But he becomes man. And that's what here we have before us, the eternal Son who is to be born into this world to become man of very man while remaining God of very God. So these are heavenly signs directing our attention to important events that will influence both heaven and earth. Now there is another wonder, little uh, wonder indeed that John talks of wonders because they are wonders. There appeared another wonder in heaven. What will we expect if it's happening in heaven if it's appearing in heaven? Must it not be good? Must it not be holy? Must it not be pure and sinless if it is in heaven? We are told there appeared another wonder in heaven. Oh, it wouldn't be such a wonder if it appeared on earth, but it appears in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon. A great red dragon. Now we've already noted the various colored horses and the riders riding forth into the earth, bringing bloodshed and war and famine and so on. Here is a great red dragon. A bloodthirsty, bloody dragon of war. And here we're told he has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Note the first thing. He has seven heads. Now, you will understand that this great red dragon was in the minds of the Jews uh, often depicted as a great sea monster with seven heads. He's got seven heads. Furthermore, each of those seven heads are crowned. He has crowns upon those seven heads. He is a monster. He is a dragon that is very obviously successful, at least to some degree. When a conquering king came home from war to his own country, to his own people, there would be great celebrations as he would ride into the city wearing the crown of the conquered king was a sign of victory. It was part of his glory as the conqueror. Here is the great red dragon, and he's got seven heads, and on each of those heads there is a crown of gold. He is also, uh, he's got ten horns and horns, where uh, symbols of power, you go to Daniel, you go to Ezekiel, you go to the Old Testament, and you see again and again that horns were symbols of uh, power by monarchs in this world. So this is a very powerful beast indeed, a very powerful, terrifying creature. Now, it isn't very difficult to identify him because when we go up to verse 9, we read, The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, or the serpent of old, the same one who came into the Garden of Eden, the same one who tempted Eve. Here he is, 
appearing in a different form. Here he is appearing with seven heads. And he's got a crown of gold on each head. And he's got ten horns. He is a mighty, mightily powerful creature called the devil and Satan. The same one, when you go to Matthew, when you go to Luke, when after Jesus was baptized, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Here he is again in this guise, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Now then, are we wondering at what we're seeing? You go back with me just for a moment to the epistle that Paul writes to the Ephesians. And there in the uh, chapter 6 of Ephesians, Paul is exhorting the Ephesian believers, and for very good reason, to put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Why would you need it on? Verse 11 of Ephesians 6, that ye might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The old serpent, the devil, Satan, the great red dragon. Put on the whole armor of God that you might stand against him, that you might resist him. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, and so on. And each piece of the armor is identified and has a particular use, a particular form of protection. Go down to verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take the helmet of salvation. Take the sword of the Spirit. Take the shield of faith. Take the whole armor. You need every bit of it. Why? Well, take a look at the monster. Take a look at the great red dragon. How many heads has he got? He has seven. What does that mean? Whenever I was a divinity student... One of our professors, he would ask some complicated or complex uh, question about some complex point of doctrine. And we'd be sitting as students almost afraid to attempt an answer or whatever. And then he would get irritated and he would say, use your heads, think. Use your heads. Well, we've only got one to use. He's got seven. And you think you're a match? You think you can handle Satan's temptations? You think you can match his wisdom, his wiles? When you go out in the morning to face the day out there in the world. And he's busy in it. And he's got his agents everywhere. And the powers of darkness are all around us. Oh, we imagine we're safe enough. We're very clever. We're very wise. We're very intelligent. We don't know what we're talking about. He has seven heads, 
and look at what you read at the end of the verse or at the end of the chapter 12. The dragon was wroth. Think of what it is. When he's wroth and he's thinking with his seven heads and he's scheming with his seven heads and he's working his wiles out and his temptations and tiny you and I think we can handle him. We don't understand what we're about. If we do not feel the absolute need to put on the whole armor of God. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with a remnant of her seed while we will come to it later. Notice how determined and how vicious this great red dragon is. When he's defeated in heaven and he's cast into the earth, listen to what heaven says in verse 12. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Back up in chapter 11, we read verse 14. The second woe is past. And behold... The third woe cometh quickly. Here we are informed of the terrible woe. The previous woes had intimated various afflictions, various trials for the sons of men. But what do we read now? Here's, here's the greatest that men have to contend with. It's not famine, it's not drought, it's not sickness, it's not war. What is it? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil, the great red dragon, the devil is come down unto you. He has come down unto you. Where do we think he is just now? Have we grasped this? When we see all the wickedness, when we hear of Satanists, do we just, oh well, they're just a strange bunch of fanatics. When you have someone claiming to be a Satanist, going to burn down a Protestant church because the devil is telling such a one to do it. You hear regularly people supposedly in sin. That's how it's covered. They go to court. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? A voice told me to do it. A voice told me to do it. Ah, well, you need to Take him to some institution. There's something wrong up here. That's as far as it goes. Because there is not the recognition the devil has come down among men. And he's got seven heads to plot and to plan and to scheme and to deceive. And poor little man thinks he's got the intelligence to rise above anything Satan might scheme. Satanists and such like bodies need to be taken seriously because Satan has come down among men. Having Great wrath. Do you think the devil is a happy creature at the moment? He's very angry. And he hates Christ and he hates his church. 
and he hates the man-child, as we shall see. But notice what it says at the end of verse 12. He shall make war with a remnant of her seed. Even a remnant he seeks to destroy. He's so determined to obliterate the testimony of Christ and the witness of the church that he will even seek to destroy a remnant. Many a king, many a conqueror throughout history has come to the point where he's satisfied, I've conquered the land. Yes, there are some pockets of resistance here and there, but uh, their power is broken, and therefore the war is over. I've conquered, I've taken over, that's it. Satan will not, if there is one last saint of God left in the earth, It is one too many for him. Do we understand that? And if there was just one last child of God like Noah, or one last saint like Enoch, walking with God, that is too many for Satan. (coughs) And therefore that's why the godly need on the whole armor of God. Because he will scheme and he will plan and he will plot their downfall with his seven heads. Now, notice what we're told takes place. The woman is described as being clothed with the sun the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, obviously, this woman is a glorious sight, and yet it doesn't appear that the description of her is very feminine in the sense that there is nothing, as it were, feminine in the description but the focus is upon her glory. She is clothed with the sun. And the sun, of course, can't be looked at. You can't stare into the sun. And so here is a great wonder. It's a sight of immense glory. And the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll remember the dreams that Joseph had. And he told his family that in his dream, one of the things that he saw was the sun and the moon bowing down to him. And the eleven stars bowing down to him. And we uh, hear in Twelfth uh, chapter of Revelation, there probably is, in the mind of John, he's thinking, well, there's a great wonder in heaven, it has a spiritual significance. And who or what is represented here? What is symbolized here? And I believe it is very, very clearly the Old Testament church. Israel, the church, in the wilderness, or the church in the Old Testament. The uh, description of Christ himself, going back to the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, we're (coughs) told there that the one that John saw with all his glory, he had, verse 16, in his right hand seven stars, And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And here is the woman clothed in that same kind of glory. In other words, 
Here is this woman reflecting the heavenly glory of Christ himself. And that's exactly what the church does. Now this, I believe, undoubtedly is the Old Testament church, the Israel of God in the Old Testament. That is, to travel, to bring forth the man-child. Now right throughout the whole of the Old Testament, you see, the travail of the Israel of God before the Messiah comes. And we're told that the great red dragon, he was waiting, he believed in the coming Messiah, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and had cast him to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman. The dragon stood before the woman or stood before the church, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now note the intention. The great red dragon, the devil, Satan, the old serpent, What is troubling him? The promises that are covenant promises that are bound up with this man-child, the seed of the woman. And he is waiting to devour the child. He is determined that this child shall not live. He is waiting for the moment of birth, as it were, to devour the man-child. He is determined that Christ shall not come, that he will not be there to redeem his people. Now you go from the very beginning of the uh, to Genesis to the third chapter where the great promise is given, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And you have the two seeds who are to engage in conflict. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are to engage in warfare. And you see how quickly it begins. Cain slays Abel. And then Seth is born. God sees to it providentially that another child is born to Eve, Seth. And then you follow the line of Seth right through to Noah. And when we come to the days of Noah, what are things like? God is going to destroy the whole of mankind because they become so corrupt and so evil. But in the midst of it, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Satan had corrupted men to such an extent that it seems there's no possibility of the seed of the woman ever appearing. And then Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. He is preserved. The human race is preserved. And you follow then history through to the days, through from the days of the patriarchs, through to Samuel and the judges, and then through to the kings. And you have King Saul chosen by the people. He's not God's choice, he's the people's choice. And it seems the promise 
if it is ever to be fulfilled, well, it has to come through the, through the house of salt. Uh, but God is another plan. He is a man after his own heart, David. And he establishes the covenant with David. So then what happens? We can forget now about the house of Saul. We can forget about the rest of humanity. And the devil, what does he do? He concentrates now in the house of David. And poor David at the end of his life, what's he lamenting? My house is not right with God. Not as it should be. But thou hast made with me an everlasting covenant. A covenant that is ordered in all things. And it's sure. And you follow right through the kingdoms of the north and the south. After David's death. There is a dispute about who should occupy the throne. But David has intimated it is Solomon. And the kingdom is united. Solomon is exercising wisdom, at least at the early part of his reign. What happens after that? The kingdom is divided. Satan makes another Onslaught, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam, and the kingdom is divided. And the majority of the tribes, they follow Jeroboam. And there's a little kingdom now that follows the house of David. An attack after attack is made upon Judah. And the concentration in the record of history is the captivity of Judah, carried away off into Babylon. Well, the prophets, hadn't they been talking about the Messiah when Herod, when the (coughs) wise men came to pay tribute to the Savior, they'd followed a star. When they came to Herod... And they were saying, there's a king born. Well, Herod was greatly annoyed because, you see, he wasn't of the house of David. Herod had set up a new dynasty of kings following the dynasty of the Hasmoneans, the uh, priestly rulers of Judah, But right up until the captivity, there was this little remnant, Judah. You go to the book of Daniel, what happens there? You see Daniel for three weeks. He's praying and pleading with God. He sees the changing of the kingdoms. Babylon, the media Persian Empire. Where is Judah? Where's the house of David? Where's the covenant line? Little wonder they were mourning there by the banks in Babylon in captivity. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? We've nothing to sing about. And Daniel tells us that from the prophecy of Jeremiah, he knew he could understand the 70 years that God said we'd be in bondage are coming to an end. But where's Judah? What about Jerusalem? Where's the promise? And he's before God pleading. Restore Judah. We want the Messiah to come. We want the Deliverer to come. We want God's promise to be fulfilled. And who is sent? One, to tell Daniel, 
that the covenant is sure, the church is secure. Although, Daniel, you might be concerned, but God has it all under control, and you see the character that is mentioned here in this chapter 12 appearing three times in the book of Daniel, none less than Michael, the great prince, who standeth for the people of God. That's what Daniel was told. Michael stands for the people of God. He fights to protect Christ's church, to protect God's cause, and he was doing it even if Daniel couldn't see it. Now here you have in this book of Revelation the great red dragon. He's got seven heads. He's clever. He can plot all kinds of things, all kinds of events. Remember what he did to the Savior. He took him into, uh, up onto a high mountain in the wilderness in the temptation. He showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. What did he say to him? All these will I give you. If you just do one thing, fall down and worship me, because these are committed to me. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, because the devil has come down among you, and he can control governments, and he can control empires, and he can control presidents, and kings, and governors. Didn't he say to Christ, I'll hand it all over to you if you will just worship me. Here he is, now working with his seven heads in earthly parliaments, in earthly governments, in the places where they legislate to order the lives of men. He's come down. And has he come down to do men good? Has he come down to aid them seeking Christ? Has he come down among them to bless them? He has come down infuriated among them. Woe be to them, because he has come down among them. Now we're told that all along he was determined that the man-child should not either be born or live. But what are we told? The church of the Old Testament brings forth the Messiah. Verse 5, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. There is going to be war now, all right. There sure is going to be war because he's going to rule the nations. But Satan is there down among men and he's determined to rule too. There's going to be a great clash of arms. There's going to be a most fearsome war between the man-child and this great red dragon. What are we told? She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now you can see that in this one verse, you have the whole life and ministry of the Savior in this world all summarized. From his birth to his ascension into heaven, he was born, she brought him forth, who was to rule, and 
her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. When did that happen? When did Christ ascend? Where did the disciples see him being caught up? You go to Acts 1, and he disappeared out of their sight. Where was he going? He was ascending to the throne of God. Now, he didn't ascend to the throne of God the moment he was born. He grew up, he lived among men, he performed miracles, he taught the law, and so on. This is a summary, a briefest summary of his earthly life and ministry. Born, and then he's caught up to the throne of God. The very throne that John has been seeing earlier and describing for us. And the woman that brought forth the man-child fled into the wilderness. Uh, He's caught up to the throne of God. But the church that has brought him forth is now fleeing from the serpent. And we're told down at the end, down near the end of the chapter, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. She is carried on the wings of a great eagle into the wilderness. And yet in the wilderness, she's nourished. She is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, we're not going to go over old ground. We've already looked at the three ways in which this period of time is described. Uh, Forty and two months or three and a half years or as a time and a, a half time, times and a, a one time and a half time, three and a half. The same period of time. She is nourished in the wilderness. Where does John's mind go? Back to the exodus. Back to the time when God delivered his people out of Egyptian bondage. Where did they go? They went into the wilderness. And what happened in the wilderness? Did they perish? Did they die of famine or thirst? No. God nourished them. He provided manna. He provided meat. He provided water. He nourished them in the wilderness. He didn't let them die. He didn't let them perish. And here is the church seen as being preserved not by her own strength, preserved in a miraculous way by God. Uh, She, verse 6, fled into the wilderness where she had placed prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days, the same period of time. There they feed her. It's interesting that... uh, The great prince here, Michael, as we shall look at him, represents the powers of the Redeemer warring against the satanic powers of the great red dragon and his kingdom. But if you go back uh, to the book of Numbers, uh, the, the very figure or the time period of 40 40 and two months, or as you have it described in the other fashions, that period of time had an unusual, a peculiar significance in the thinking of the Hebrew people. 
here in the wilderness, what are we told? She should be fed there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Forty and two months. Down in verse 14, a times nourished for a time and times and half a time. And three and a half. Forty-two months. You go back to the book of Numbers to the 33rd chapter and you will discover that when the children of Israel were journeying through the wilderness and being nourished by God, you check out and count the cities, the stations throughout their journey, 42 stations in their journey. And that's why in the Hebrew mind, this would have a significance, 42. That's when our fathers journeyed through the wilderness. That's the length of time God sustained them in a, in a symbolic fashion. Now, the woman is sustained. She's nourished. She doesn't perish. She doesn't grow weak. She's nourished. But the man-child, where is he? There was, in verse 7, war in heaven. Great wonder. The great red dragon. War in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels. Now, what kind of a war do you imagine this would be? Do you imagine that there's a great collision between legions of horsemen and chariots, and spears, and weapons of war clashing in heaven. I think we get some idea of the kind of war it is when we go over to the little epistle of Jude. Remember, Michael and his angels are warring and fighting against the dragon and his angels. And Michael and his angels overcome the dragon. Now he's got seven heads, remember. And he uses his heads. What are we told? Jude, verse 9. Well, to get the connection, verse 8. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, when contending with the devil, now if we didn't have that reference, we'd be wondering what was the war all like in heaven. Well, here's the contention. He's contending with the devil. He disputed about the body of Moses. So it is a war of disputation. It is a war of minds. A war of words. A war of ideas. Contending with the devil. What are they fighting about? About the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a reeling accusation. You see, Michael recognized the power of the great red dragon. How very foolish we must be when we do not recognize his dominion 
his power, his superiority. When Michael would not even dare, he would contend with him, but he would not bring a reeling accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. So here in heaven there is this war between Michael and you will go if you go back to Daniel, you'll see that Michael is referred to as one with a superior knowledge of God and the things uh, of, of God. He's, uh, when the messenger comes to Daniel, he says to him that there is none that holdeth with him but Michael. Uh, verse 21 of Daniel uh, chapter 10 I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things. But Michael, your prince. Michael is an expert in the scripture. Verse 20, to get the connection, then he said, Knowest thou whereof I am come unto thee, and I will return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things. But Michael... You're a prince. So you can imagine the war in heaven. Michael and his angels are fighting and warring with Satan and his angels. And they're warring over the truth. And they're warring about the purposes of God. So that When we come to the chapter 12 here, the uh, great red dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. When did this happen? When the man-child ascends the throne. When the man-child ascends the throne, Satan is cast out. And we're told that he is the accuser of the brethren. He's cast out with his accusations against the people of God, against the brethren, He's cast out into the earth. And he's cast out because the man-child that he sought to devour has ascended the throne. And Michael has cast him out because of something. And we shall come to see it. There stands now between Satan and the throne of God Between Satan and his accusations, the blood of the covenant. Verse 19 of chapter 11, the ark of the testimony is seen. Satan is defeated. He can't bring accusations because the blood has stood between him and his people, and are Christ's people. The blood has made the difference. They overcame, as we shall see, by the blood of the Lamb. But 
my dear friends, what has happened to us in the 21st century? Satan seems to be just a joke. And yet, if we were reading our Bibles and looking around, we can see he is mighty powerful and he is mighty effective and he's working with his seven heads throughout the world and he is bringing men to think as they do today completely contrary to God why are they introducing all the immoral legislation why are governments determined to introduce laws that are in defiance of heaven because Satan has come down among you Woe be to human society because of his activities. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his truth. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we rejoice that there is a throne that is occupied by that man-child who is indestructible, And we rejoice that indeed the great red dragon with all his power has been defeated and shall be at last cast into the lake of fire. May we then in the midst of all the darkness of our day rejoice that there is a throne and that heaven has been opened up that we might see the one who rules and reigns and has care of his church in every generation. Bless us, we pray, with faith in thy truth. Pardon all our sins, receive us for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.